Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Lord, as we come to celebrate the most important day of all creation, the day when Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, was raised again from the dead. And today he lives and reigns on his throne on high. And Lord, because of Christ's resurrection, his death and resurrection, Lord, we can know your saving grace through him. Lord, this is the day that all of history, all of history is built upon this day. So, Lord, we come and we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day, Lord, in which we will be raised from the dead to a new life in your kingdom. Lord, today, as we open your word and we study the resurrection, Lord, Lord, build certainty into our hearts. Let us hear the word of truth and let us believe the word of truth and, and rest in it. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 23. We'll be looking at chapter 23, verse 44, through chapter 24, verse 12. So looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus this morning. There are some decisions in life in which we need some degree of certainty. Take, for example, if you were to serve on a jury, you got called up to jury duty, and you're serving on a jury, and a man is accused of murdering another, and this man's life is in your hands. As you listen to the evidence, given to you, presented by the lawyers, you need to come to a point, as the judge will remind you, of a point of, of no reasonable doubt. If there's any reasonable doubt that this man is innocent or that this man is guilty, you need to, to uh, find him not guilty. So if you're going to send this man uh, to pay for his crimes, then you need to know for certain, with some degree of certainty, that he actually did it. And then it's the lawyer's jobs to, to prove that, to present evidence, to build the case, to prove whether this man did or did not do the crime. Now, can you know absolutely that he did not commit the crime? Or that he did commit the crime? No, you can never know absolutely, not unless you were there. Or if there were some video evidence, of course we know in today's technology, even video evidence can be doctored, right? So you can never know uh, absolutely of this man's guilt or innocent. But you have to come to a point of, of reasonable certainty. Well, if we should have such reasonable certainty in, in such a matter as a court case... How much more should we be concerned about eternal matters? 
And so when we come to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, upon this historical event hangs eternity. If we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then we can trust in Him, we can devote our lives to Him, and we can spend eternity with Him. But if we determine that the evidence behind the death, burial, and resurrection is not true, or proves it to be untrue, then we could actually end up spending eternity in hell. Now, many people today would say that the Christian faith is, is there's, there can be no certainty at all. In fact, they would say the Christian faith is just a, a matter of blind faith. No evidence, just blind faith. If you want to believe that, then you just have to believe it blindly. But that's absolutely not true. In fact, Scripture shows us that to be untrue. You see, dear friends, Christian faith is not blind faith. But Christian faith is certain faith. Let me say that again. Christian faith is not blind faith. Christian faith is certain faith. In other words, you can have a great degree of certainty about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Christian, today I want you to leave here with more confidence, greater confidence in your faith and your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you're a non-believer, you're struggling with this idea of the death, burial, and resurrection, especially the resurrection, right? That doesn't happen. We've never seen someone raised from the dead. If you're coming with, quest with questions concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then today I want you to leave here with a greater degree of certainty that this truly did happen. And my prayer is that you would leave here with faith in Jesus Christ. We are looking in Luke chapter 23, but Luke here is, his whole gospel is built on this idea of certainty. In fact, hold your finger there in chapter 23 and flip over to the beginning of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1 the very first few verses of Luke chapter 1, and Luke tells us why he is writing this gospel. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1 there, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Now, Theophilus, is, we don't really know who Theophilus was. Most likely, he was a leader of a church somewhere there in the Roman Empire. And so this letter is not just to Theophilus, but it's most likely to the church that met in Theophilus' house. And Luke wants Theophilus and the church that meets in his house to know for certain 
to have a great degree of certainty that Jesus really was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a life in complete obedience to God's will. He died on Calvary's cross, was buried, and resurrected again. And so today we're looking at just that end part right there, that Jesus Christ indeed died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised again. So today I want to show you three certainties you can have concerning the Christian faith. Three certainties you can have concerning the Christian faith. So let's look at our passage then. If you found your place there, please stand with me as we read in reverence to the to God's holy word. Luke 23, starting in verse 44, hear the word of the Lord. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their chest. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to, the, to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked, the, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they, re they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna who, and Mary, the mother of James and the other women, with them 
who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So we see here three certainties that we can have concerning the Christian faith. First, the first certainty that we can see here is that Jesus died for our reconciliation. Jesus died for our reconciliation. Now, we see in the text that there in verse 44, 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Now, what's taking place at this point in time in, in this passage? What's, what is the meaning of this that the, the daylight became as dark? The sun quit giving its light. We see here at this point that all of God's wrath is being poured out on Jesus Christ as he's hanging on the cross. You see, we deserve all of God's wrath, the fullness of his anger towards rebellion and sin. That's what we deserve. But at this point of the, the crucifixion, all of God's wrath is being poured out upon Jesus not because Jesus deserved the wrath. Jesus lived in complete obedience to the Father's will. Jesus was completely without sin. He did not deserve wrath. He deserved life or his life of obedience. But here he is receiving the full measure of God's wrath. We can see this demonstrated in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 through 11, gives us a description, kind of sort of what's happening here. Now, this passage is looking forward to the final day and the final day of judgment, but we can see the same thing, type of thing happening here. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low pompous pride of the ruthless. So here Isaiah is predicting the end times, the end day, when the Lord will come finally in judgment over all of the earth. And looking at the earth and seeing the full sin of the earth, God will pour out his entire wrath, his entire judgment for sin upon the earth. And on that day, it says it will be as night. The sun will fail to give its light. The stars and all their constellations will hold back their light. The moon will not shine. It will be a day of great darkness. 
And we see the same thing taking place when Jesus Christ was hanging on his cross. And all of God's wrath was being pulled out fully upon Jesus. Now think about this. Most of you have probably played with a magnifying glass, haven't you? And be honest, probably as a child, you took a magnifying glass and you went out and you found a little ant somewhere and you took that magnifying glass and you held it just so, so that the sun would come through and it just blew up the ant, right? It disintegrated that ant. You know you've done that. Don't lie, you've done that. Most all of us have done that. I mean, that was just an amazing thing for us as children. That very same thing is what's taking place on Calvary's cross. It's as if God is holding a magnifying glass over his son, Jesus. And the whole fury of God's wrath towards sin is being focused in on one man who doesn't deserve it. But he is there in our place. And he is receiving the full measure of God's anger, the full measure of God's judgment upon himself in our place. And this was to reconcile us to God. You see, in our sins, we are at odds with God. We are enemies of God. We can't go before God. We can't stand before God because we are separated by a wall of separation from God, a wall of sin. He cannot see us. He cannot look on us with any kind of pleasure because of our sin and our rebellion against Him. That was symbolized in the temple. With the curtain, there was a curtain of separation between God who was, who was resided in the Holy of Holies in the temple complex. And there was this great big curtain that separated the presence of God from the rest of humanity. Just like we, in our sin, are completely separated from God. But as our passage says, when Jesus, at the end of that, on the ninth hour, the earth quaked and the curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God from the rest of the world was ripped in two because Jesus had opened up the way and provided a way to have access to the Father. He paid for our sin in full, reconciling us to God. Dear friends, we can be certain that Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, He died for our sins in order to reconcile us to the Father. Jesus reconciled us to the Father. The evidence is there. It is there. It is in Scripture for us. Second, we can be certain that Jesus was buried in a tomb. We can be certain that Jesus was buried in a tomb. We see, continuing on there, looking down in verse 50, we see that Jesus was buried. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of, a, of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, when he presents to us Joseph, 
he presents Joseph as a witness. Now let's think about, back to our, our first illustration, that of a courtroom. If the prosecuting attorney, is he, if he's going to bring a witness to sit on the witness stand, he is going to make sure that person is of good moral character. If that person is not of good moral character, he's not going to be a reliable witness, is he? No, he's not. And so Luke, as he presents to us Joseph of Arimathea, he's presenting him as a, a witness, a, character, a, a good witness with a good, solid, moral character. He gives us the town in which he lives. This is Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. In other words, there, Theophilus, you can go to Arimathea and you can find Joseph still alive. He is still there and he will testify to you that he went and took Jesus' dead body down from the cross. He is a, a good man, a morally upright man. He is righteous, right? He is a man, though he did sit on the council of the Sanhedrin, he did not consent to this de the death, the crucifixion of this innocent man, Jesus. In fact, he voted against it, but Joseph was outvoted by the rest of the council. He is a good, upright man. He is a righteous man. He is of good moral character. You can trust his word. So Luke gives us a good, solid character who will come and testify to the fact that he took the dead body of Jesus off of the cross and buried it in a tomb. Not only do we have the, the eyewitness account of Joseph of Arimathea, but we also have Pilate's confirmation. We have Pilate's confirmation. Joseph, he can't just come and do this on his own. I mean, this is a Roman execution. He can't just go get Jesus' body. He has to go get permission. So Joseph goes to Pilate, who is in charge of this execution. He is the one who sent Jesus there. And Romans, you have to understand, Romans were great executioners. In fact, they would not allow, if someone was sentenced to death, they were not going to allow that person to escape that sentence. I mean, that could be detrimental to their own lives. If Pilate had... A, had of, had have let Jesus off the cross knowing that he was not dead, then Pilate could have been sentenced to death by those who ruled over him. The same can be said about the, the centurion. Pilate, as Joseph, another gospel tells us, Mark tells us, that when Joseph comes to Pilate, Pilate's kind of dumbfounded that Jesus is already dead. And so he calls for the Roman centurion, the one who is in charge of it out there at Golgotha. He calls him in and says, Come, is it true that Jesus is already dead? And the centurion confirms, Yes, yes indeed, Jesus is dead. So we have the confirmation from Joseph. We have the confirmation from Pilate. And we have the confirmation from the centurion all telling us that Jesus was dead. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Because there are those out there, there are arguments against the resurrection that would say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Yeah, they would, they would admit that he was crucified, but that they would say that he was only swooning. In other words, he, he just passed out. He went into a, a deep coma where his breathing was so shallow that, that you couldn't even tell he was alive. 
But that's just absolutely not true. When you consider how the Romans have become such experts at, at death, how could it be that they would be so fooled by a man like this? They were excellent executioners. They made sure that those whom they crucified were truly dead. In fact, we have the, the account of, in the other gospel John tells us that the, the Jews there, they even asked the Roman soldiers there to break the legs of the men because it was, it was a day of preparation. Tomorrow's the Sabbath, and we can't have these men hanging on the cross overnight and on into tomorrow. Can you please break their legs and hasten their death so that we can get them down off of there before the Sabbath day? And so the Roman soldiers did that. They went to one, and they broke his legs so that he would die. They went to the other. They broke his legs so that he would die. When they got to Jesus, though, they saw he was already dead but to make sure to make sure they plunged a spear up through his chest into his heart cavity and John tells us that water and blood rushed out if Jesus was just passed out he certainly was dead after the spear pierced his heart Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and put in a tomb. So we have the testimony that Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph, by Pilate and the centurion, and by the women. There are the women there, and they're in all three of these sections that we're looking at here. The women are there. They are observing these things. They are witnesses to these things. And you need to see that they're, they're good character witnesses as well. They're good witnesses of this as well. The women who had come with him, verse 55 says, they had come with him from Galilee, following and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. In other words, Luke, why did he put in that little sentence there, that on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment? Because Luke, again, is presenting this, these women as of good moral character. These are, are women who obey the law. They observe the commandments. They're not lawbreakers, but you can trust their testimony. They saw where Jesus was buried and waited till after the Sabbath on Sunday morning to go and anoint his body. So today we can be certain, we can have a great de degree of certainty that Jesus died for our reconciliation, that Jesus was buried in the tomb, and third, you can be certain that Jesus was resurrected in accordance with God's Word. Now, this is the most important part, right? Because we can concede that Jesus died on the cross. We could concede that he was buried on the cross, but we might still have a problem with the resurrection of Jesus. How can this be? I mean, this is not a normal thing that takes place. People, when the people die, they die. That's it. It's over. There's nothing left. How can it be that a man can be raised from the dead? But today, I want you to see here that we can have a great degree of certainty that Jesus Christ indeed was resurrected from the dead in accordance to God's Word. 
First of all, we see uh, here we have manifold testimonies to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. We have a, an abundance of testimonies. First of all, we have the testimony of the angels. The angels are there and they testify to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. As the women go to the tomb, they find the tomb empty. No one's there. And so they're sitting there perplexed about what had taken place. And it says, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And so we have these witnesses coming there. They're angelic witnesses. But they come there and they testify to the fact to these women that Jesus indeed has risen from the grave. He is no longer there. He is no longer dead. The, dead, the grave could not hold him. But Jesus had risen from the grave. Amen? Praise the Lord that Jesus was raised from the grave. But we don't just have just the angels because we might would say, well, that's a supernatural thing. We've never seen angels. But we also have the testimony of God's Word. We have the testimony of God's Word. This is absolutely important. Jesus had told them beforehand, before the day of His crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, He told His disciples over and over and over again, I must, be, I must go to Jerusalem. I must be turned over to the hands of sinful men. I must be crucified, and I will arise again. I will be raised again. Jesus told them this over and over and over again. He showed them from the Old Testament Scripture how the Old Testament Scripture testified to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, must be crucified, buried, and raised again. Now, why is this important that God's Word tells us before Jesus was crucified that He would be crucified and raised again? Well, I can remember a time when I, in, back in high school, playing football, and uh, I was, we were out practicing. I wasn't a defensive player because when I was in high school, I weighed 150 pounds soaking wet. So uh, I wasn't the big, brawly defensive guy. I played split in when I played, right? So, uh, but when we got to practice, they put me everywhere. Wherever they needed someone, uh, that's where they put me. And so we were practicing offense, actually, and they put me there on defense. And the coach told me before the, play was, the ball was snapped on this play, he said, I want you to run through that hole right there. I just, as soon as the ball snapped, you just take off as hard as you can run and run right through that hole right there. So I listened to the coach. When the ball was snapped, I put my head down, and I ran through that hole. I was a defensive player, right? We're, we're practicing offense, but I ran through the hole just like the coach had told me. I had my head down, couldn't see a thing, but all of a sudden, hit something, and I looked up. And there the running back was laying on the ground in front of me. I had just plowed over him. That, it shocked me more than it shocked him. It did. But now, what do you think I told when I, as a high schooler? What do you think I, yeah, I meant to do that, right? 
I mean, it's easy to take credit for it after the fact, right? And, and how many times have we, any of us taken credit for God's providence after the fact, right? I meant to do that. But dear friend, I want you to see that God doesn't operate that way. God tells you what he's going to do, and then God does it. He don't take credit for things after the fact. He tells you up front, I'm sending my son, and he's going to die on a cross, and three days later, I'm going to raise him again. God's word testifies to us before the fact of what God's going to do, and God did it. We can trust God's word. We can take him at his word. He has never failed to, uh, to complete a promise that he has made. He made the promise that he would send his son to die on the cross for our sins, and he accomplished the work. We have the testimony of the angels. We have the testimony of God's word. And again, we have the testimony of these women here, these women, they, they testify. They even go back. They remember the word of the Lord. This is the word that God had told them, that Jesus had told them before the fact. They remembered in that moment Jesus' proclamation that he would arise again. And they go back and tell the disciples what had taken place. So we have the testimony of God's word, we have the testimony of the angels, and we have the testimony of the women. But I want you to see another evidence uh, here that, that Jesus did and truly, truly did rise, arise from the grave. We have the unbelief of the apostles. We have the unbelief of the apostles. Now why is this important? Look, look what it says here. But these words, as the women proclaimed this to the apostles and the disciples there, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. These women are going back to them and saying, you remember what Jesus said? Don't you remember, Thomas? Don't you remember, Andrew? Don't you remember? Jesus told us that he would be delivered to, to sinful men, he would be crucified, and he would be raised again. He told us this, and it's happened. It's happened. We saw it with our own eyes. He's not there. The angels were there. They proclaimed it. They're telling them these things. And the disciples and the apostles are sitting back, you're crazy. You're crazy. Now, why is this important? Because one of the great arguments is that the apostles made this whole thing up. They made up the resurrection. But here we see the apostles, they're, they're, they're proclaiming to us. Luke is telling us what took place. And he's telling us this off the testimony of the apostles. Yeah, we didn't believe them. We thought it was a, a fool's tale. We didn't believe them. They are taking upon themselves the foolishness of not believing Jesus, not taking him at his word. In other words, they're becoming a fool for Christ. If this were made up, if this were just a story, the apostles would, be the, would have been the first ones to see Jesus raised from the dead. That's how they would have presented the story. If you're telling the story, you're not going to present yourself a fool if you're making things up. But the apostles, they take it, we were foolish. We were idiots. Because we failed to listen to Jesus and we have failed to listen to the testimony of these godly women. By the way, in this time, a, women's, a woman's testimony was not viewed viable. 
They were not allowed to testify in court because uh, they were, their testimony was deemed untrustworthy. Why would they tell us that? Why would they allow the women to be the first testimonies, the first ones to, to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus only because that's how it truly happened? That's the only explanation. Because it's the truth. Dear friend, we have the evidence that Jesus Christ was indeed raised from the dead in accordance with God's word. Now there's far greater evidence than this. We, we're looking at this and we hold on to this, but there's greater evidence still. And if you want to dig into it, you can do that. But I want you to see why this is so important to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will des descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, why is the resurrection so important? Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope of eternity. We have no hope of resurrection ourselves. But God tells, gives us his word. One day, he will send his son back. And this time, he will be sent back to call his own to himself. And those who are dead in Christ, they will be raised from the dead and given a new life in Jesus. And those of us who, who happen to still be alive on that day will be caught up with him in the air, given new bodies and a new life to live for all of eternity in his kingdom. Dear friends, we can be certain today that Jesus did indeed die on Calvary's cross. He was indeed buried in a grave, and he arose again. And in that, we have the great hope of our own resurrected life. So dear friend, today, I challenge you to live with certain faith. Live with certain faith. Now, there is no absolutes here. Right? Is there absolute certainty? No. If there were absolute certainty, there would be no need for faith. But there is certain faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can have reasonable certainty because of the mountains of evidence that are, are there for us to investigate that Jesus Christ really did what he said he did. Lee Strobel was a, a, an educated man. He, was, he had a degree from uh, the University of, of um, Missouri in journalism. 
He then got a master's in law from Yale Law School. He was an educated man. He, he thought himself to be a great intellect. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, a secularist. He, he, he did not believe in God. He was an absolute atheist. He thought Christianity was absolutely foolish and unreasonable. So when his wife came home one night and professed faith in Jesus Christ, he thought her a fool. And he set out on a mission to disprove Christianity. And what did he do? He set his sights on one particular event, the one event that can completely dismantle Christianity, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you, can, if you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity has failed. He set out to do so. Do you know what happened? As he began to pull in the evidence like a skilled attorney of law, as he began to investigate the evidence and to set out the evidence, instead of proving his wife to be a fool, he proved himself to be a fool. With all the evidence that he accumulated, the mountains of evidence that he accumulated professing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lee Strobel had no choice but to give his life to Jesus. He left the Chicago Tribune, and now he serves as a pastor and, and a, an apologist, all because he saw the truth of the evidence and came to certain faith in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, you can have certain faith today that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, who for all of eternity past, he was God. And God stepped down from his throne and he took on human flesh. And he came to this world and he lived a perfect life without sin, without rebellion against God. And though he was without sin, without guilt, he went to Calvary's cross and he died on the cross, not without purpose, but he died on the cross in your place and in my place, taking our guilt and our shame and our penalty for our sin. He bore it all for us. He paid the price. And he was raised again, assuring us that there is nothing left to be paid. And Scripture says if we repent, we turn away from our rebellion, turn away from our striving against God, and turn to Jesus and trust in him, he will save us. He will raise us up again on that day, great day. Your friend, do you believe in Jesus? Have you given your life to him if not, let today be the day of salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. We thank you that we come here today, Lord, and, and we can be absolutely certain within great reason, have reasonable certainty. Lord, you don't just ask us to believe blindly, but you give us reasonable certainty. You give us mountains of evidence to, to look at and see so that our faith is grounded in reason. Thank you. Thank you for what you have provided for us who are so hard to believe. 
Oh Lord, today there are some in here who, who've never trusted in Jesus. They've been struggling. They're here today because they've been struggling with this whole concept of, of, re of resurrection that, that just doesn't happen. Lord, let them see the evidence. If they leave here today still in doubt, let them not rest until they dig up more evidence and see with certainty the truth of the resurrection. Open their eyes, Lord. Let them see. As I pray in Christ's name, amen. Stand with us if you will.